Blog Talk Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, congratulations. You're about to arrive to the right place. Five, four, three, two, one. Welcome to the Ellen and Aaron Sports Podcast. Are you ready for it? Now, here is Ellen and Aaron. Good evening, everybody. It's Friday, July 1st, 2022, and it is Bobby Bonilla Day here on the Allen & Aaron Sports Talk radio podcast presented by Chef G's Barbecue Sauce. So delicious and addicting, you may need a support group. Um, Happy Bobby Bonilla Day to you, uh, Allen. It's a good evening to be on the air. Great to be talking about some great sports uh, things that are going on right now, and uh, obviously we'll explain to our listening audience here in a moment, Bobby Bonilla Day. Yeah, it's a great day and definitely a great opportunity to have a great time. We're going to have a very nice show for everybody. Glad to be with you. And it's always great to be on the Allen Aaron Sports Talk Radio Show with you, Aaron. Always a pleasure. Absolutely. Now, we had some questions on our Facebook page uh, earlier today. Uh, I posted, of course, uh, that today is Bobby Bonilla Day. And a lot of people don't know what that is. So allow me to explain and maybe you can back me up on some of the main points on Bobby Bonilla Day. First things first, who is Bobby Bonilla? Well, he played uh, mostly in the 1990s, uh, Major League Baseball player, mostly a third baseman, played a little third, uh, first base uh, at the end of his career, um, actually with Atlanta, believe it or not. Um, Was with some really good Pirates teams. Uh, He was kind of the second in command or the second uh, superstar of those early Pirates teams behind Barry Bonds. Ended up the Marlins uh, in the 97 World Series. Uh, that was actually the one team I forgot that he had played for. They, they won the World Series that year and then, of course, sold the entire team off within a month of it all um, you know, coming to an end. And so he ended up, I believe, with – I forget if he went to the Mets right after uh, he was with the Marlins or, or where he went right after that. Um, but to – stamp what Bobby Bonilla Day is, the contract that he signed while he was with the New York Mets, probably one of the best ones ever from a player's perspective and maybe from a team perspective, one of the worst ones. He deferred a lot of the money in that, uh, in that contract to where for 20, I believe it's 25 years. It started in 2011, 10 years after he retired, and it'll run to, I believe, 2035. So he's about not quite to the halfway point of it, but it essentially is he's getting that deferred money from that contract. He's getting a, a million plus a year plus the interest that's accrued to that. So um, it's every July 1st uh, from 2011 until 2035. So um, it's been dubbed Bobby Bonilla Day. The Mets are still playing for a, a paying rather for a player that hasn't played for them in over 20 years. Um, he came out ahead in that deal. And, you know, it doesn't really bother their payroll. I'm sure they're well connected there in New York, but it's just a funny thing. And it's, kind of a you know kind of a comical thing to talk about over the last uh, several years so uh, give me your thoughts on Bobby Bonilla Day yeah it's it's definitely a very interesting crazy and funny story all wrapped into one you know you mentioned Bobby Bonilla he was in the 90s and I think a lot Bobby Bonilla was a very good player but I think Bobby Bonilla was like a guy who kind of got hyped up a lot because he came out in the same year, like he became big and, notor- and notarized in the same year as Barry Bonds. And I think 
people kind of got confused with Barry and and Bobby. I don't know why, but people used to always put them together. And as far as talking about them, and Bobby Bonilla was a was a good player. I think he was kind of overrated, but I definitely did see where the Mets would be interested in him. But they grossly overpaid for him. And what ended up happening was they took bad financial advice. They were basically in a hole where they, make a long story short, they bought back his contract and had to pay either a lot of money up front or smaller payments over a long period of time. They took the smaller payments with interest over a long period of time, which is what Bobby also wanted too. It worked out well in his favor. But hey, Bobby Bonilla is it and his agent, it worked out where this was like the best contract I, I have ever seen. I mean, even if you get a hundred million or two hundred or three hundred million dollars, a lot of those contracts, you have to pay the taxes up front. So it might sound big at first, but once you take out the taxes, your expenses stuff, when you get that type of lump sum money from the government, you're gonna have to pay a lot in taxes. His thing was great because it's, you know, a million plus 8% interest, and it's for up until he's 72. So that's a better pension plan than most people could ever work for. It's just, it's funny because they have to keep scratching checks many, many years later because of bad financial decisions and bad financial advice. They fell into a hole. They couldn't pay him a lot. But it was, it's a magnificent contract. It's funny. But it's also sad at the same token. What are your thoughts, Harris? Yeah, I mean, uh, it, it's an interesting one. And it's, the one thing I will say, too, and this is not something that's known by a lot of people. A lot of times you see a, con- a big contract get signed. Bryce Harper signed the uh, huge deal he got with the uh, Phillies a few years ago. And then Mike Trout signed that huge extension with the uh, the Angels. A lot of times all you hear about is the a- uh, average annual value and then the overall years and the overall money, a lot of times these guys do defer a good chunk of that. And it does two things. Um, It actually helps both sides. When you defer money like that, it helps the team out because then as you're inevitably towards the end of your career and you're not being as productive at 37, 38, 39, 40 as you were when you were in your 20s, the team's not paying you the same amount as though you were a 28 or 29-year-old as you are now as a 38 or 39-year-old. So you're deferring that money so the team isn't having to pay quite as much in whatever season they happen to be in. And it helps the player out too because even if they've been smart financially speaking, you know, over that same amount of time and they've you know been able to keep most of their money in the bank, you know, at the same time, it's nice to have every year, you know, an annual date where you get an extra – lump sum of money put into your account with interest on top of it. So I think it's a, a good thing. It actually happens, believe it or not, a lot more than people realize. It's just not normally where it's over a 25-year period like this particular contract is. And, and yes, the, the Mets, I, again, I don't think that they're hurting on this. This isn't going to really probably hurt really any club, um, even if they're in a tight financial situation, just because you think about, to you and I, a million dollars is a lot of money, and it should be to anybody, to be honest with you. But to a, a franchise that probably easily profits $100 million or more a year. It's 1% of whatever they are making. So, you know, another person to give us a really good uh, insight on this would be our good buddy Lou, uh, who joins us here tonight. And, Lou, I want to start off uh, right off the bat. What are, your thoughts on, <laughs> what are your thoughts on Bobby Bonilla Day and, and this whole situation? 
what a joke. Come on. You're going to pay until he's, he's probably like 100 years dead already. I mean, yeah, we still got to pay this guy. I mean, come on. You should have stopped paying him a long time ago. Well, he's uh, oh, he's 59. What a joke. Yeah, he's 59 years old. I, I looked this up here on uh, online a few moments ago. He's 59, so yeah, I'm doing the math correctly. He's got 13 years to go, so he'll be 72, 72-ish by the time this is uh, finalized and paid off in its uh, in its and entirety. I'll be 63. So. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, for Bobby's sake, it is a genius move because. I think this is a great deal where I, I would say maybe other players and other teams might want to consider this, meaning if you're a guy who's a big prospect and you're going to sign a 60 or 70 or $80 million contract, to have money deferred for 20, 25 years, even if it's a million like what Bobby's getting with interest, that's actually a very, very good deal. You can't – with that type of deal, unless you go crazy spending, it's harder to go broke that way. Yeah. I think – I think it's well, a genius move. Okay, I get that. But for the Mets, yeah, I, like, go ahead. Why well, do other players think that way, though? You know, because half of them are broke now anyway. The ones that are retired. Not Bobby. Like, I, I don't think so. I mean, I, I was trying to see if I can get Bobby, but he, I mean, he doesn't. I didn't see any Twitter accounts or Instagram or Facebook. He's pretty much in hiding. He might not even be in the states, but. For Bobby's I heard thing, a rumor about that. Take it? I think I heard a rumor about that. That he's out of Days the state? Inco- yeah, he's incognito somewhere out of the states. Yeah, Probably not a bad thing know. to do. I mean, you know, you're not getting bugged with, uh, you know, autograph requests and, and uh, you know, a lot of the other things. And he, here's a guy, too, you talk about Barry Bonds being a teammate of his at one point. Bobby Bonilla was kind of similar to Barry Bonds in – a lot of his dealings with the press. He didn't really care for the press too much, so um, kind of understandable yeah, sometimes. But <laughs> um. <laughs> yeah, my feeling on on the press is, you know, I see it from both sides. I see why guys get irritated with the press because they ask a lot of annoying type of baiting questions. You know, sometimes they just go on the deep end. They won't keep it. They won't keep it about the sport. They'll stay on the drama. And then at the other end, it's like, okay, maybe a few guys ask you a couple of bad questions, but you don't want to be a guy who doesn't answer any questions. You know, it's part of the gig. So I look at it both sides. Yeah, and I got to imagine, too, you know, you're, you're, baseball is one of the – it is the most grinding sport out there because you're going – I mean, you're eight months essentially – the entire year round, but eight months of either playing games, getting training in, uh, postseason baseball if you're on a good team. So you're going from mid-February to, you know, hopefully late October. And so, you know, if your personality is maybe a little bit, um, I don't know, uh, rough around the edges or you're just, you just you would rather be focused on the game, sometimes when you get some of these dumb questions that are asked, it's totally understandable how – you know, some guys just want to, you know, not talk at all. And then when they do get those dumb questions, they were maybe already answered in a previous uh, question that was asked, you know, you, you kind of come unglued a little bit. So, um, but yeah, I, I would say those, those two guys were obviously, uh, you know, early on in careers on the same team. I didn't realize this, so I looked this up. Uh, Bobby Bonilla was originally in the White Sox organization. I was not aware of that. So, 
Yeah, and I, that's what I think. I think Bobby Bonilla, because he played with Barry Bonds as a teammate, they kind of lumped them together. And I think Bobby was a good player, but I thought he was really overhyped. Barry was the real deal. Definitely. Me... Barry was the real deal. And in lieu of taking any performance-enhancing drugs, Barry Bonds, to me, is, is a first ballot Hall of Famer. But – you know, obviously, you know the the suspicion thing. Things change, but okay. I, I still think he's. A, I even with that, I still think he's a, a Hall of Famer. What are your thoughts, Lou? You mean that he's a Hall of Famer? Yeah, he's a Hall of Famer, but still. I tell you, Bobby got that Hall of Fame contract, though. Yeah. So how you been? Yeah. How, what do you, you got? It? <laughs> Go ahead. No, I was just no, gonna say. Uh, no, I was just gonna say, Lou. Uh, what did, what did you think of these the Stanley Cup? How it ended out? How things played itself out? Colorado had all the right moves. They had, you know, all the players in there, and Tampa Bay was looking, you know, like a train wreck, especially in the later in the later games. You know, uh, their star players are getting injured. You cannot win if you're shorthand like that going into the, like in the later game. It's like. Game five and six, whatever, they weren't healthy enough to uh, to overtake Colorado. It was simple as that. And Colorado is much too strong on offense. It'd be a, it'd be a miracle that for Tampa Bay to win that. They had almost no chance. They were lucky enough to get to a six game, but all in all, all in all, uh, no. And what are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I think that the uh, first game was kind of the indicator of this. Um, I, I really honestly believe, and I'm not saying Tampa would have won this series, but I think it would have been a little more interesting had they not um, finished their series as late as they did against uh, the Rangers. Um, look, Colorado had eight days off before the series began, playing your playing the first two games in Colorado. Um, and they really, I mean, it was a, a, a punch to the mouth the way that uh, – the first game went, and really, uh, was it game two where they won like seven to one? Um, that was that was seven, really the, the shutout, seven nothing. Seven nothing. Seven nothing yeah. yeah, I mean, we're we're talking about a punch punch to the mouth, and then an immediate second punch to the mouth right away. So, um, I think game plan that Colorado came in with was, I think, to be as fast as they could be, and it it, it paid off. It worked for them. Um, this is the two teams that everybody predicted for the most part being in the Stanley Cup when the preseason happened uh, last uh, September, October. So, you know, it didn't, uh, didn't disappoint. It was really a great series overall. I really do believe that either team could have pulled it out. Um, but Colorado, you know, they just they, they took advantage of the weakness. And I'll say that the thing that really was the key to this series was Colorado took advantage of the power play. And Tampa Bay, I don't know what the stats are on it, but Tampa Bay just they, they couldn't seem to get their, their normal um, grip when they had the power play to their advantage. So, um, you know, I expect them to be back again, a, a contender again next year. Obviously, um, yeah. you got a good core of players in place that are, are um, you know, certainly very good. And get one of the best goalies in the game uh, as well in Vasilevsky. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, I agree yeah, with a lot of okay, what you I, I agree with a lot of what you both said. I, I definitely do think for the Lightning, them not – finishing their series with the Rangers going that deep, getting the three days rest really hurt them.
because I felt as if the only thing that helped them in this series is when they actually had energy. And that was in game three. But even in the first game, I was even see, noticing the lack of energy they showed in, in just not even when Colorado was running fast. It just, you could just tell they just didn't have the, that extra energy, that level of adrenalism. And it showed. I felt as if any game that went to overtime, the Lightning was going to lose. Even if game six went to overtime, it was not going to be a good thing for the Lightning. The no. only chance they had to win is if they won in regulation. Any game that went to, to overtime, they didn't do good. And to Aaron's point, it, it was night and day between Colorado and the Lightning with power plays. I don't think we scored that one power play the whole series. It was it was really – Did game four have six men on the ice? Yeah. I, and I, and I, I, feel, I do think they did get that wrong, but I still feel as if the Lightning was going to lose that game anyway because – the entire second half of the game, Colorado was just, you know, the Lightning was on the was on the heels. They were you can't win a game if you're just playing on the defensive end all night long. No, so me, of course not. So to me, I felt as if even though that was a missed call, even if they took that goal away, I think Colorado would have scored within the next three to five minutes anyway. That's how I felt. Exactly. You know, so yes, you had a good complaint, but. You weren't going to win that game anyway. You you just can't win with somebody no. in your kitchen all night long, especially that second half nope. of the game. But you know, Tampa they did very well. Uh, you know, overall considering they didn't have all their their legs with them and they weren't really at full strength. I thought they made the to get it to six games was very good. I would have liked to see them win that game at home, the sixth game, and see what happens in the seventh game, but. You know, you can't really fault Colorado. They did what they had to do. By the time Lightning figured it out, it was really kind of too late. You was already down by two games. And that worked in the Rangers series. It wasn't going to work in the Colorado series. Yeah, no, 100% correct on that. And, you know, I think that Tampa really, I mean, they played a, a tough postseason. I mean, you talk about Toronto in the first round. And then, you know, they, they took a two um it was Miami in the or Florida in the second round, uh, but then, you know, the Rangers really played them hard that entire series. They were down two games to none there, and you know, so I think that uh, you know they certainly played a tough, probably one of the tougher postseasons in recent memory from any team, whether they won or lost in the finals. And, and again, I think that they'll be, yeah, they'll be they'll be a contender again next year. I think Colorado will be too. Uh, you get some other really good teams. New York's in there. Toronto's in there again. Um, it'll be interesting to see how free agency goes and, you know, who goes where. Yeah. So yeah. your Rangers, your Rangers beat us up. Your Rangers wore <laughs> us out. We was able to win the, the battle, not the war. Well, good. We did our mission then. <laughs> so, Lou, yeah. So what do you got cooking on your show this weekend? It's 4th of July weekend. Yes, and we will be on. Uh, we'll cover we'll cover the uh, end of the Stanley Cup Finals, uh, the College World Series Finals, um, the uh, other football league will have their uh, Super Bowl on uh, on Sunday, whatever you want to call it. You get the idea. Um, <laughs> yep. Yeah. Baseball. Uh, we'll also take a look at the standings. We'll also uh, talk about the uh, well, you want to call it, I call it baseball 
So we're going to discuss the melee on that, which I think coincides being the ridiculous night of the week, maybe of the entire year. So uh, you might want to you might want to tune in. Uh, same time, same station. Five one two five four three four six six two from five to seven p.m. tomorrow. I mean, you know, maybe a holiday weekend. But hey, I'm still going at it. Whether you like it yeah. or not. <laughs> so if you got time before you're doing your barbecue or whatever, you know, uh, tell your tell your friends, tell your family, tell your in-laws or outlaws, everybody uh, to call in the show. That's right. Five one two five four three four six six two, and it's five one two five four three four six six two. The enhanced sports show tomorrow Saturdays between five and seven Eastern Standard Time Zone. Always remember that it's always Eastern. That's right. So you have a great show, and definitely happy Fourth of July to you. Happy Fourth of July, guys. Thanks a lot. You're very welcome, Lou. Thank you for calling in. We really appreciate you. Thank you, Lou. <laughs> All right. Oh, we're going to get out of here. Have a great day. Yeah. All right. That's our good buddy, Lou, of course, uh, calling us from the New York, New Jersey area. Always has a good uh, take on um, on uh, some of the, the discussion that we're having here. And, of course, uh, we certainly encourage you to support the Enhanced Sports Show, which Lou, of course, is a part of on Saturdays. Uh, uh, for the last several years. So uh, keeping with the theme uh, baseball-wise, um, you know, this is the one time of the year where for basically the next uh, roughly two months, Major League Baseball is the only of the four major sports that is uh, is being played right now. So it's all all to itself, which is nice because we have in a little over two weeks the Midsummer Classic, uh, the 2022 uh, Major League Baseball All-Star Game this year is going to be in Los Angeles at Dodger Stadium. Uh, Dodger Stadium was supposed to host it two years ago, but, of course, uh, this thing called COVID-19 got in the way and delayed the season and, of course, to the point where it ended up uh, taking the All-Star Game out of the equation. But always a fun time. I know we're still a couple weeks away, but we're getting some of the, the voting results uh, are, are, are starting to uh, show up. I know that uh, Ronald Acuna was the – number one vote getter in the national league. He's going to be a starter or should be a starter in the, in the all-star game. Let me ask you this, Alan, uh, all-star weekend or all-star week is filled with all kinds of uh, great things. You have, um, you know, the Sunday, you now of course have the draft, but you have the, the futures game, which is basically a matchup of the future uh, speculated superstars. They play uh, for their respected teams. And then you've got the, Celebrity softball event um, that night. Monday night you have the home run derby, and then Tuesday night is the actual game itself. Which of those events is your favorite of all all the ones that go on? That's a great question. They all are very entertaining for their own separate rights. I would have to say if there was one that I could make and get a front row seat to, I that's I guess it would have to be the celebrity game because I feel like if I was close enough I might get some autographs and some pictures but if not the close close second is going to be the home run derby yeah I feel like the game itself is is actually probably at the end of the list don't get me wrong it's you know really awesome to watch the best of the best in today's game out there on the field but it's essentially a glorified exhibition game Um, there's not it doesn't have any bearing on anything else during the season. Um, the nice thing is, is 
you know, both of us being in our 40s and dating back however many years we've been watching baseball, we can one day turn to our kids or our grandkids and say, just like our grandfathers or people who were before us said, hey, I saw Mantle play or I saw Aaron play or I saw, you know, Griffey play. We can say to our kids uh, or grandkids, hey, I saw Mike Trout, I saw Bryce Harper, I saw Ronald Acuna, I saw, you know, name a player, uh, Albert Pujols or whomever. Um, so it's kind of what our generation will be able to do. I, I really, I, I'm agreeing with you there. I, I really enjoy the celebrity softball game for a number of reasons. Usually um, there's a theme of people who are in either Hollywood or funny enough, it's in Hollywood this year, of course, but there's normally a theme of people who are from that area in different walks of, of life. And it's not just, you know, common people. It's, you know, an actor who might be from whatever city they're playing in or a former player who played for that organization, or, you know, there's usually some uh, many different um, ways to go about with the game. They take it seriously, but they also have a lot of fun and kind of goof off at the same time. So there's not really, it's serious, but it's not, if that makes sense. And there's usually some joking around and stuff that goes on and you get some, you know, kind of cameo appearances from people you wouldn't normally expect to be there. So that's a lot of fun. My favorite probably honestly is the futures game because there are so many stars that, you know, in the last 20, I guess it's been since 1999. So the last 22, 23 years, stars that are out there today that played in the futures game and you get to see their skills on display before they've actually reached, you know, the big league level. So I've always found that to be fun. And of course the home run derby is, is a lot of fun to see guys, you know, hitting the ball 500 feet or more. So, yeah, it, it's a lot of fun. I, I think you can't go wrong with those two. And and you're right. I, you know, one of my speaking of the game that memorable memories that kind of watched I watched during the All Star game was Bo Jackson when he hit that leadoff home run. That was just like his. And then it was like Bo knows they started that campaign right after. Mm-hmm. Bo knows this, you know. So. There's been some memorable moments during a game, but like you said, it's kind of a glorified exhibition. Guys don't want to get hurt, which I don't blame them. You know, they don't want to get hurt. The home run derby is really cool, but a lot of times some of the guys you want to see in it, nowadays less and less guys kind of participate because of messing up their swing, and I, I can respect that. But the celebrity game is, is fun because, like you said, you get to see all walks of life and – Everybody's trying to have a good time, but they take it somewhat serious because they want to win. But it's it's always a lot of fun to see. It's great for everybody involved because the players that are there get motivated to do better in the second half. They also don't, they kind of get a break too. They don't have to work as hard. And the players who don't make it, they have motivation themselves. Plus, they get some extra rest. You know, the dog days of summer is real that you have to keep grinding throughout the summer. A lot of places we have a heat index of over 100 degrees. It's good to get a nice little break. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a very good point there. And, and I know some guys, you know, I, you know, I think the one thing that does happen, you see this happen probably once a year where you'll have a player who will decline altogether to be a part of the all-star events. And I, I somewhat understand that from the perspective of, again, you just mentioned all those factors, the heat, heat index, you're 90 games into the season or more, um, you need a little bit of a break. And, it, you know, the good thing is for the players who don't make the all-star team, you've got three or four days of nothing going on. You're, you're, you're probably taking your, your batting practice, 
you're throwing your slide sessions, your long toss, and then you're just taking some time off to breathe and spend some time with family before you get back to the grind again. And that second half of the season always seems to be more um, anxiety, more, you know, edge of your seat. Every game ha- seems to have double or triple the impact or the, uh, the, the value that the games the first half of the season had because now, you know, where you are in the standings, matters even more as the season starts to wind down. So I'm looking forward to the all-star break. I'm going to actually be in Colorado um, during the all-star events this year, um, which would be really nice. Uh, normally in, in, in my lifetime that I've been watching all-star games, I've almost always been out of town on a vacation when they're going on. So I've always watched them from different, you know, different parts of the country or different parts of, of Florida. Um, so this won't be any exception this time around. And Really looking forward to it. I know um, they're going to announce the Futures game uh, uh, roster here in the next probably week or so. Um, the neat thing, too, and this just started in 2020, uh, 2021, is you now have the uh, first-year player draft going on on that Sunday, which is the same day as the Futures game and the uh, All-Star Celebrity Softball game. And I wanted to bring up some names here because, you know, baseball is a little bit different than – basketball or football in that if you're the number one overall pick in the NFL or NBA, for instance, you're going to most likely be playing, you know, that same year, you know, you're, um, you, you go back uh, in the NFL a year ago and it was um, uh, the quarterback from Clemson who went to Jacksonville and he's starting for the Jaguars first year. Uh, you're not going to see that typically in major league baseball guys are going to go through the minor leagues. They're going to develop, they're going to, you know, enhance their skills, and it takes them a couple of years sometimes to get to the majors. So a little bit different. Um, I'm not sure if you had a chance to really look through some of the names, but I just want to throw a couple guys out here real quickly um, in this year's draft, which, again, takes place here in about uh, uh, a little over two weeks. One name that I'm going to throw out there right now that I think is going to be uh, a star in the making very quickly, this name is going to sound familiar to a lot of people, is Drew Jones. And you may ask yourself, where have you heard that name before? Well, he is the son of former big league ball player Andrew Jones. Um, We've seen a lot of uh, former big league players' kids that have come into the big leagues the last two, three years. Like I can think of two right now would be uh, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. and um, the uh, kid for the Padres. His name's slipping my mind here. They're better than their dads were. And Guerrero's dad's a Hall of Famer, for crying out loud. So uh, Drew Jones, I think he's going to be a terrific uh, player. Potentially go uh, number one overall. Um, you got another kid from, I think he's right here in Florida, Elijah Green. These are going to be names that you're going to be not just hearing, but you're going to be seeing these guys turn into superstars on the, on the field over the next uh, four, five, six years and beyond, uh, just like we saw with, Bryce Harper and with Mike Trout and with, um, you know, uh, Zach Wheeler. And I could go through a whole other list of players. But I, I want to get your perspective because the draft has changed a lot in the last 15, 20, 30 years. What, what are your thoughts on how this is in comparison to, say, the NFL? It, it's it's exciting. You know, definitely if you're going to be a first-round pick, as you mentioned, Drew Jones is projected to more than likely be the first-round pick. And not only that, you know, he's the son of 
Andrew Jones, who I've, I've actually got a chance to meet him, and he's a, he's a great player. And when Andrew Jones started, he started off fast, too, as a rookie playing for the Braves. He, he started off really hot. And I, I definitely do think Drew Jones will have a great opportunity to, to do great in this draft. The, the, by the way, the Baltimore Orioles have the first-round draft pick. But that's one of the things about baseball that – it's kind of a uh, – I say it's exciting, but it's kind of a drag is that, you know, if you're lucky, you'll get to the major leagues in two to three years. But that's where baseball is very different is that you have to spend usually two to three years in the minors, which is usually a grind. It's not you, – you're traveling on a bus every day. It's not glamorous. If you want to get a, a good documentary on what minor league baseball is like, you can watch, you know, Jordan Rides the Bus. That's that's a great documentary to see how much of a grind it is being in minor leagues. You know, there's is not a you know you don't have a lot of fans in the stands. You have to kind of make it day to day, and that's where most people, most players, transition from it being fun to a career. And you get that sense in the minor leagues. I think I'm I'm the, the minority thinking that, hey, if a guy could play within six months to a year, bring him up sooner the better. Don't let him don't waste his youth, and it's time he can be productive in the minor leagues. What are your thoughts? Um, I'm I'm more of the mindset of you want to see a guy improve. Now, it, it does depend on where they were taken in the draft, and you know. Also, what the organization needs. You don't want to just rush a guy to the major leagues for no reason because the the negative ramifications on that is you bring a kid up tomorrow and now his his service time clock begins. That basically means that you're going to be paying him a lot more money a lot quicker um, than you would normally. So I, I would say you, you may have the physical skills already to play at that high level, but here is the difference, and you made a very good point there. You talk about where plays in the minor leagues, and they're not used to seeing many people in the stands as you get a little bit higher up into double and triple A. Those ballparks have gotten a lot bigger, and there's a lot more fans, and there's a lot of things that draw people to go into those games now. But you go from playing in front of practically nobody to now you're playing in front of forty or 50,000 people. There's a lot of mental preparedness that goes into that, and – Baseball is a game that is, and I'm paraphrasing Yogi Berra, baseball is a game that's 90% uh, mental, the other half is physical. I know it doesn't make any sense, that's why it's a Yogiism, but it, there's a lot of truth behind that. Guys are not always ready to to be playing in front of such a – you're, you're on display. If you're playing out there in front of nobody, it's just you, the pitcher – and the catcher and the umpire, so it's you among four people versus now you're playing in front of the fans that are there, and you're also playing in front of, you know, however many million people might be watching the game, you know, on TV. So um, I'm more of a, a develop, um, let their skills kind of kind of start to show um, before you bring them up to the major leagues, because a lot of times you bring up a guy too early, that can ha- kind of like the, the thing with the home run derby, that can really have a mental – uh, negative drawback to how you prepare going forward. It's the same principle there. Um, I will say this, though. You know, you go back to the 80s, um, and 
it was not uncommon for there's two things I would say. It was not uncommon for a player drafted in the first round, even in the top like five or ten picks, four or five years in the minor leagues, getting seasons there before they get, ever got even close to getting called to the major leagues. It's not that long anymore. It's it's probably half of what it used to be, if not quicker. You're drafting guys that are mostly out of college that are going to be making a big league impact pretty fast. Um, you know, it's not uncommon to see, and sometimes even college players, mainly pitchers, sometimes will go from playing like in the college World Series to the end of that season. They got drafted by whoever, and they're coming up in late August or early September and playing for whatever club they got drafted by. The other thing I was going to mention, too, kind of in, in similar fairness, used to be if you were a team that said, hey, we're going to just tear the team down, we're going to rebuild, that process used to take five, six, seven, eight years to rebuild the farm system and, and you know figure out who, who are your key players, who are your building blocks and foundational players. A rebuild now doesn't take nearly that long. You look at Atlanta as an example. They – they decided to kind of implode everything in 2015. In 2018, three years later, they're back in the playoffs, and uh, six years later, they win the World Series. So it is something that can be done a lot quicker, and that's primarily due to the development. You're not having guys spending quite as much time developing in the minor leagues. You're, you're getting them through quicker. You're seeing those, uh, those things and those skills develop. And I would credit a lot of that to the new school thinking of that advanced analytics that has really changed the game in the last 20 years, you can pinpoint with a computer essentially what a player is going to turn into or how they're going to develop. It's not an exact science, but it's very, very, um, it's very, very uh, on point. And there's a very low, um, you know, margin of error, I guess you could say. So it's it's really changed things. It's nice to see too, because it's a lot of fun to watch teams develop the way they have. Yeah, I agree. And and I'm on for one that's definitely in favor of the fast track. You know, if guys got skills, bring them up. And, you know, main thing is you want to learn how to hit those curveballs, backdoor sliders, things like that. But once you kind of get that and you get the feel of how it is in the minor leagues, bring a guy up. You know, that's that's what steers, I think, a lot of people from baseball is now it's gotten better a lot, not better now, but the length of time that you have to spend in the minors sometimes draws people away from baseball. But it's definitely if, if, if I see a guy who's who's gifted and talented, I'm, I'm in favor of the fast track. Move him up. You know, get him into the major leagues. He's got to learn at some point. Usually guys that are drafted now, like you see your point, are a little bit more polished, meaning that you don't see the guys out of high school as much now. If you want to get drafted, I think now in baseball, you have to be playing at a collegiate level and do really well. What are your thoughts as far as – what are your thoughts on – if you have a boy that's playing baseball, how would you position them to get drafted? Um, well, I think it depends. Um, now, you're asking about if it was my, my son in particular or – Yes, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think if you are mind made up that you're going to be – you know, heading towards the professional game, I would say keep your skills, keep your skills up, um, you know, keep, keep, uh, and be open to playing not just one particular position. I think you, the one thing that I think is nice today is opposed to when, say, I was younger, you know, 25, 30 years ago, a lot of times back then guys would just kind of zone in on, hey, I'm a pitcher, 
or I'm a position player, I'm a catcher, a first baseman, what have you. Um, and I think it's changed a lot now in that you have players that are a little bit more willing to play every single position on the field. Um, quite frankly, I think that's changed a lot. You saw a little bit of that maybe in the early 2000s, but I think now you know, you'll see a team draft a player and they draft him as a hitter. Um, or actually, let me use an example here. Ricky and Keel with the uh, Cardinals in 2000, excellent pitcher. He'd come up through the minor leagues. He had done extremely well. Gets to the big leagues. And this is kind of the whole thing with, you know, the mental part of it. He had control issues. I think there was a game where he walked like eight guys and one. A lot of it was he just couldn't find the strike zone, even though he had a great arm. Well, when he was younger, he was very athletic and certainly very gifted, had a great arm. Took some time off from playing, and I want to say in like 2005, 2007, somewhere in that vicinity, he decided, look, I'm still young enough to play. I can hit the ball. He was actually a pretty good hitting pitcher back when pitchers still hit. And so he made a comeback and went from being a pitcher, a starting pitcher at that, to being a really good defensive outfielder, had, a, had one of the best arms I've ever seen, and he was a really good hitter. He had a couple of seasons where he hit over 25 home runs, and so because he was athletic and because he, he was willing to make that change, he was able to prolong his career. And actually, unless you were paying attention 20-plus years ago, most people probably wouldn't even realize that he was a major league pitcher at one point you know, during his uh, big league career. So back to your other point, though, I want to kind of throw this in there. The one thing that I think is also really, really crucial when you're bringing a kid up from the minor leagues, so you're playing at the same level of talent that's around you. So if you're at single A ball, well, the best guys around you are not going to be guys who play at the big league level. Guys who go through like rehab assignments, they get injured, and they come back and play for a couple of days in the minor leagues. They typically go to double or triple A. So the big thing I think is this. If you're going from typically, let's say, double A ball, you're going to go to triple A before you go to the major leagues in most cases because the worst player at double A ball, or I'm sorry, the worst player at major at the major league level is probably going to still be better than the best player at the double or single A level. So you have to look at the competition side of things too. You're not going to see a guy go straight from high, high, uh, high A ball to the majors typically because that talent level is a lot different. Your, your peers that you're playing with, it's kind of, I'd use the analogy or the comparison to um, preseason football back when they used to do the whole four games per season. A lot of times, you know, if you have a player who maybe has a really good fourth quarter, they're playing against the fourth string of that other team. So you're not really getting a full representation of how good they really are. If they were playing that well against the first string, of that other club, of the other football team, you got a point there. But the whole point is that the, the competition level is a lot different at, at you know single or double A or even triple A for that matter than it's going to be at the major league level. So there is a, a learning curve. I think it goes into it as well. Yeah, and 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 definitely being the minors, I got a lot of respect for guys that are in the minor leagues. It is a grind. It's not easy. You know, it's not as glamorous as playing obviously in the majors. And you just it's a it's a flat out grind and a lot of players, younger players don't understand it. You have to be patient too. You know, everybody's thinking about getting called up, but it might not be that day, it may not be that month, it may not even be that season. You have to kind of wait. To your point though, there are 
this year a vast majority of players in position that's really needed in pitchers. Believe it or not, if you are a pitcher this year, you would have a very good shot of getting drafted high. But unfortunately, there isn't too many really, really high draft pick pitchers. Does that surprise you? Well, there are. Um, the, the caveat to that is is uh, this is a record year. I'm not sure if it's really a record, but I'll call it a record year for pitchers that are already injured with uh, with having to need Tommy John surgery to have their um, elbow ligaments replaced. And so the interesting thing I think that's going to create this year is every team has a pool for how much they can spend on players in the draft. Now they can exceed that pool, but they get penalized. They get a, a tax basically added on for anything above whatever their allotted amount is. So I think what's going to happen this year, you're going to see pitchers still taking, because you think about it this way, the point we've been making here the last couple of minutes is typically you're not going to draft a pitcher and have them come to the major leagues right away. Anyways, you're going to let them probably pitch two years in the minor leagues to kind of see what it's all about, kind of test him out, see where he's most valuable to your team at. So if you're drafting a pitcher who right now isn't going to play at all this year, not even play in 2023, you're probably going to be able to sign him for lower than the slot value. So the other part of it too is every single draft pick, so the number one pick, the number two, and so on, has a value to it. So it's kind of like a manufacturer's suggested retail price. So let's say the number one overall pick, the value is $10 million. Number two pick is 9.5. And, of course, you do the math going the rest of the way down the line. A lot of these teams are going to be able to draft some of these pitchers higher than, than they might have gone because they were injured, and they're going to be able to sign them for – a lower slot value, meaning they'll have more money to spend on players later in the draft. I think it's going to make make these kind of interesting because that's one of the things that goes into it too. It's not just, you know, who's the best player I can take. They also have to think about, you know, the strategy of, you know, if I, if I draft this player and I sign him, am I going to have enough money to sign some of these later picks that I get without going over, you know, the cap amount that I have. So there's a lot more to it than just that you know, looking at the talent, you got to look at all those moving parts that are going on at the same time. Contract negotiations. Is this guy hurt? How does this guy impact my team? You know, does he make me better right away? Or, you know, how long is it going to be before he gets to the majors? There are so many things that go into those decisions um, that we don't see as fans on the outside. Yeah, definitely. It's a lot that goes in behind the scenes and, you know, all the players that are in the boat to get drafted and looking to get drafted in the next couple of weeks, definitely good luck to them and, and just be ready for, for a grind. I did want to kind of give a shout out to Drew Robinson. I don't know if you know too much about Drew Robinson, but those who don't, you should check out his uh, documentary alive. He went through the minors and played in the major leagues. And if you're struggling with a, the grind, and also if you're struggling with mental health, it's, it's definitely a great documentary. It's called Alive, starring Drew Robinson, and it definitely is a great, great watch. Yeah, definitely uh, sounds like a good one to catch, you know, kind of get an idea of what goes on behind the scenes. I've known personally um, several players um, that never made, never made it to the majors, but 
people I've worked with, uh, a few friends from church that were drafted, uh, played in the minor leagues for, you know, a handful of years. Um, and it, it's always a neat story to hear because I think that guys, especially the guys who grind, have a, a bigger appreciation for the game itself and for what it took to get to that high level. Um, you know, the thing about baseball that has changed many times over the years is the number of rounds that are in the draft. I mean, you go back to the 80s, there used to be 62 or 63 rounds. They've trimmed it up. I think now there's only going to be 25 or maybe 30. It might only be 20. I'm not really sure. But um, it, it is interesting to think about it that way. And guys that were lower picks that, you know, when you're a lower pick, you're not expected to do a whole heck of a lot. And I'll go back to, to um, I think it was five years ago when Ken Griffey Jr., who was the first ever first overall draft pick to make the Hall of Fame, that same year Mike Piazza made the Hall of Fame. He was the lowest pick to ever get into the Hall of Fame. He was drafted in the 62nd round. He's the equivalent in a baseball sense to the low draft choice but the high value that came out of him to Tom Brady. That's the only good uh, uh, comparison I can make. I'm not saying they had the same career because Mike Piazza didn't win a World Series, but, you know, as far as being a star and being overlooked, you know, in 62 or 63 rounds by all these other teams 62 times, and then he becomes a superstar and, and a great player, one of the best catchers of all time. It's just a really neat story to hear about. So, Oh, yeah, definitely. And, you know, Mike Piazza is, you know, it's, it's ironic, but he played for the Mets just like Bobby Bonilla did. And, you know, Mike Piazza really was a guy that made it happen, and he worked really hard. And, you know, surprisingly, I'm surprised he, you know, looking back that he was drafted so late and to be such a great player, you know, definitely big props to Mike Piazza. You know, the interesting thing about that, he was only drafted because Tommy Lasorda, who was the Dodgers manager from 78 to 96, I want to say, or 95, um, the late Tommy Lasorda um, drafted him as a favor. Uh, Lasorda, and I want to say it was Piazza's dad, or it might have been an uncle, drafted him as a favor, kind of as a, you know, because when you're, when you're drafted that low in the draft, you're drafting anything above probably the 20th round, you're not necessarily taking guys because you have a deep scouting report on them. You might have some little niches here and there that you know about, but 62nd round, you know, you're running out of players to draft first and foremost, but secondly, there's not a whole lot of information probably on those guys. So they, they took him as a favor and what a favor that turned out to be. He turned out to have a hall of fame career and just a, really great ball player. Um, one of the most feared hitters in the nineties, especially. Um, I mean, he was a home run threat almost every time he came up to the plate. So. Yeah. I remember him, you know, Yankees facing him. He always was a home run threat because he had that big swing and, and he, if he got a hold of one, it was out of there. There's no doubt about yeah. it. And interesting thing about Mike, he really didn't stride into the ball either. It was basically his swing and upper, body strength. He didn't really have a stride. He, I was like amazed that he could just swing a bat and hit it that far. It's unbelievable. Yeah. He was a, a big, what was he? Six, four, six, five, uh, probably two forty ish. Um, you know, he played, uh, of course, a, a very tough, uh, 
position and catcher. And of course, a guy that big playing catcher, that's going to definitely take a toll on you. At the end of his career, he was more of a DH. Um, finished up, I believe, with the o- Oakland A's in, I want to say 2007. I could be wrong on that. But um, staying in the baseball world, uh, we want to pass our condolences along here tonight to the family of uh, Casey Motter, passed away, I believe it was yesterday. Uh, to those of you who don't know who he is, a um, couple of interesting tidbits on him. But he, uh, since 2006, had been the public address voice for uh, the Atlanta Braves uh, at Turner Field and now at Truist Park. And our good buddy, uh, Tyler Redmond, I'm not sure if anyone out there has watched his uh, program. I would definitely recommend it. He's a good friend. Um, and he supported our show, and we supported his for the last year or so. He actually did the voiceover for the um, beginning of, of Tyler's uh, show, which is um, on deck. And so uh, our thoughts and prayers are with his family. It was a sudden passing, not anything that was expected. Um, he's definitely going to be missed. And I, I was just in Atlanta here uh, a little over a month ago, and it was always a nice thing that you get to the ballpark and you hear him announcing the players coming up to bat and who's going to be pitching and who, you know, different things that are taking place during the game. So definitely a sad time. And, and we certainly are going to miss him and, and definitely give our condolences to his uh, friends and family. Yeah, definitely. We'll, we'll go ahead and do a moment of silence. Yeah. So definitely our prayers, condolences, Go to the Brace family, and you know, speaking of that, we'll we'll go ahead and discuss. I wanted to get your take on it on the Freddie Freeman situation <laughs> and the controversy on that. I wanted to, you to tell the fans, you know, who don't know what's going on, what happened, and then I'll get your opinion and I'll give you my opinion on it. Yeah, this has been a saga that has just uh, really ballooned into a a soap opera for lack of a better phrase. Um, so, uh, you know, obviously um, if you're not paying attention to how things have gone in major league baseball, since the walkout ended, then you're not a real fan. Um, but I'll clue you in on what's happened. So Freddie Freeman, uh, within a few days of the lockout ending, um, allegedly reportedly um, wanted to wait on whether he was going to resign with Atlanta or move on. Braves didn't want to wait. They went ahead and pulled the trigger on making a deal uh, with the A's. They sent some prospects to Oakland and got Matt Olson. The deal has worked out really well for you know both sides, I would say, at this point. But um, the part of the drama that wasn't really mentioned is, you know, Freeman is obviously very, very emotional. Last week in his first trip back to Atlanta, he got his World Series ring. It was a nice ovation he received during that time, but apparently – during the three days the Dodgers were in Atlanta, word got out, and I don't know where exactly this came from, but word got out that uh, uh, the agent for Freddie Freeman uh, did not communicate the last offer that the Braves made and kind of hid it from him. And that's kind of what led to the decision to not uh, sign, of course, for the Braves to move on to Matt Olson. So this week... Uh, Freddie Freeman decided to fire his agent and his representation. And it's kind of led to a lot of back and forth. Uh, my personal view on it is what's done is done. I do wonder if this supposed offer that was made had been known, 
would he have stuck around or would he have moved on still? Don't really know, but I, I want to get your take on this because it's, it's very interesting to hear how some of this stuff has developed. And by the way, I would say this is not the first time, not necessarily with this particular agent, but this is not the first time that something like this has occurred. I'll kind of elaborate on that here in a moment. Yeah, my thoughts on this is I really personally believe that Freddie Freeman is having what you call buyer's remorse. I don't think he he emotionally fell in love with Atlanta. I don't think he really wanted to leave Atlanta. And the powers that be, I think he decided to go probably where the money was going to be a little bit more lucrative at, where that was going to be with the Dodgers. And I think, you know, in life, sometimes when you make decisions and it's just based on a lot of it is based on financial. And I'm not saying it was all financial, but a big base of your decision is just based on money. A lot of times things do not go your way. And I think his heart and his soul is still in Atlanta, but he's playing for the Dodgers. And I, I do think Freddie knew about the last offer. I don't think his he got misrepresented. I think he was kind of hoping that Atlanta made more of an effort financially to keep him. You know, Atlanta doesn't have the same payroll as the Dodgers. Dodgers have, uh, you know, they have Magic Johnson and some other owners. They have deep pockets there in L.A. And basically they outbid. So I think he was hoping he got that better offer from Atlanta, like, a, you know, a little bit more. But I don't think I, – I, I think he's making – these accusations based on emotion. I think he really loves and wanted to be in Atlanta. He probably thinks being in LA is cool, but he'd rather be playing for Atlanta. And he may have heard some hearsay about this last offer, hoping that it would be true, and he fired the guy. But Derek Jeter, who usually, I'm telling you, Derek Jeter does not step into drama whatsoever. He is the least drama guy you could probably know. Now, things may have changed because he's retired from baseball, but he basically put out a statement saying that he has had that same agent and is noted for over 30 years, and he vouched him that, hey, basically he took the agent's side and said, well, no, if there was another offer that was on the table, you knew about it, the last offer, and you didn't take it, basically. So you can't blame the agent. So Derek took his side, and I would have to side with the agent, too, and, and with Derek on this side, I think they gave an offer. He knew about it. He was probably unhappy with the offer. I hope it was a little bit more. Powers of B didn't work out his way, and he got his feelings hurt. And you could tell he's still emotional about it because how emotional he got when he got his ring. So I think he's got buyer's remorse, and I think this is a, a way of him saying, okay, I didn't make the decision to stay with Atlanta. It's kind of your fault. That's what I think. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I think, you know, I'll, I'll kind of throw this in there as a uh, side note, too. I think you go back to 2021 spring training, Chipper Jones and Freddie Freeman, good friends for a long time. And when Chipper retired in 2012, he kind of passed the torch of the team leader over to Freddie. So you think of Atlanta's baseball history, there's only four or five names that are just synonymous with Atlanta baseball. It's Hank Aaron. Dale Murphy, Chipper Jones, and Freddie Freeman had a chance to be that next guy in that list of players who were, 
you know, you know their number, you know what what their stats are, and he he chipper last uh, last spring spring over a year ago, so uh, February March of twenty twenty one, warned Freddie like, look, don't don't play games with your free agency because you're going to lose that dance if you take any risk at all. They'll move on without you. It will happen, and so. I think that was in the back of his mind. I think that he waited 24 hours longer than he should have. He, he, he had that last, you know, this wasn't a normal off season, you know, from December of this past year, a little over six months ago, seven months ago now, um, you know, they weren't able to negotiate. They weren't able to have contract talks. They weren't able to, to even have discussions about whether they were interested or not because of the lockout. So when that all ended, it was like the dam had built up and it broke and you had to make a decision quickly on where you wanted to go, especially if you were a bigger name player like Freddie Freeman. So the Braves being in the position they were in, yeah, look at their side of things too. Hey, we can't be caught without having a, a, a productive player at first base. So it was either we wait Freddie out and potentially lose out on these other guys that might get moved. And then we could possibly lose it on Freddie too. And they'd be holding nothing. So Atlanta basically was like, look, we've got we to know right now or we're moving on. And they basically put that deadline out there. Whether he knew about the deadline or not, that's something we don't know about. But I agree with you 100%. I think what this ultimately is, is this is buyer's remorse. This is Freddie. And I, I feel for him because I, I, I love the guy. He's a great player. Um, one of my favorites uh, these last 10, 12 years. And I think ultimately what it is, is you're coming back to where you played for an organization for over 15 years. You grew up there. I mean, half your life is spent there. This is a team that made you a millionaire. You won a World Series. You were on some really bad teams here too, by the way, um, over the years. Um, they just they had some really bad teams, you know, when they were rebuilding. And he was the one guy that was kind of the – came through it all. And so I think ultimately all that emotion coming back to him and then – Obviously, there's going to be storylines around you coming back to Atlanta. Everybody who was not happy that he left is going to start throwing these different things out there. I don't know what the origin of the story about them making an offer was. I don't know if the team told them or if somebody around the team told them, but it grew legs. Nobody ever really verified where that came from. And so I think this was Freddie Freeman saying, look, Casey Close, you're my agent. He worked for Excel Sports. I'm not happy with what happened. I'm not happy with all this speculation. I'm emotional. And I'm firing you. I mean, I, I can't say I blame him if those things are true, but at the same time, I think really the—I hate to say it—the only person to blame really in this case is Freddie. He he made some some decisions where maybe he did get misled a little bit. Um, you know, that's his call to determine. But I think ultimately, I, I think you nailed it on the head there. It's it's remorse, and I think if he could go back and do it over again, he would have taking the offer to Atlanta made to him. It was a pretty impressive offer too, by the way. The only thing that was different was one year. The Dodgers gave him one extra year. The Braves are only going to be one to offer him five years. I think ultimately, though, this story kind of goes away. I think as the season moves on, both the Dodgers and the Braves, I mean, they're the two best teams in the National League at this point, uh, just as far as their recent uh, success has been concerned. I think they've got to turn the page and kind of move forward. Otherwise, probably more for the Dodgers than anything else, it's going to really become a distraction. Yeah, I agree. I just think this is buyer's remorse, and this is Freddie's way of pointing the blame at somebody other than himself. Hey, it's your fault. You didn't tell me about the last offer. 
I don't I don't buy that. I, I think you knew about the offer. You you know you were you did not be you were not showing that you were committed to Atlanta. I think they gave you a great offer. They gave you as much time. They said, hey, we can't be left with nothing. You know, I think in life opportunities come and they and they they go. There's no guarantees when it comes to opportunities in anything in life. Somebody gives you an opportunity today, it doesn't mean that that opportunity is going to stay forever because it usually doesn't. There's a shelf life, and I feel as if Freddie, you know, he probably felt even worse about it as time went on. And you could tell he still got – I probably haven't seen any player get this emotional this soon from leaving their former team than Freddie Freeman. I mean, he's always Atlanta. He gets emotional. He talks about Atlanta. He gets emotional. I think there's a lot of strings that are there, and I think this is a way for Freddie to kind of relieve his heart of, hey, it's not my fault. It was my agent's fault. He didn't talk about the last offer, so I'm firing him. I think you knew about the last offer, and you just, you know, you, you basically, you know, you, didn't, you weren't assertive enough. And that extra year, you're probably saying, you know what, I should have played for Atlanta. But actually, yeah, because, hey, I'm sure there's a difference in lit lifestyle in L.A. versus Atlanta and taxes and fees and you're insurance. Definitely more, I was going to say, you're definitely yeah. paying more taxes in California. <laughs> exactly. So, <laughs> exactly. And he probably, after living there for a couple of months, the reality came in, and I think he was like, you know what, I probably should have stayed where I was at and just taking the money, played, you know, the year wouldn't have made a difference. And, yeah, that's that's what happened. You, this is Freddie's fault. He's got buyer's remorse, and he's trying to deflect the, the responsibility from somebody other than himself, which you see this sometimes in athletes, which irritates me. They don't accept responsibility. This is because Freddie, like you said, to your point, Aaron, he could have been a lifelong Atlanta Brave like a Chipper Jones, but he decided to – you know, he he played games and it didn't work out. Now you're you you're with the Dodgers, and I agree with you. I think with the faster this story goes away for both the Dodgers and Atlanta and his agent, the better for everybody. Who who um which team is more which which team stands to, to lose the most from this not going away? The Dodgers or the Braves? I think the Dodgers. I think the Dodgers have more to lose. And the reason why I think that way is because he's playing on the Dodgers. If you have this distraction and the media keeps asking you, hey, because it shows that you really – it kind of shows to the people in L.A. that you really don't want to be there. Yes, you're there physically, but your heart is in Atlanta. You know, that's the worst thing you ever want to do is be with, let's say, a, a new girlfriend, but you're always talking about your ex-girlfriend. You understand? Yeah. People – going to show that you're not really committed to being here. So I think it's, for Atlanta's standpoint, they got a ring. They're doing really well. They kind of moved on. They got very good players. I don't think they're talking about it anymore. They've accepted reality. I think it's really still in Freddie's head. Yeah, I think what will be a big indicator is the next time these teams play each other, um, I think it will be a distraction if they somehow meet in the playoffs again this year. They play each other. Here's the thing about uh, the Braves' recent success. Um, They've won four division titles in a row, including last year. And three of those four years, they've met the Dodgers in the playoffs. So I'd say there's a good chance they could meet each other again this year. And I just wonder if that happens, if the emotions that Freeman 
is that going to carry into the playoffs? Um, I would certainly think it would. Um, and my hope for him is that he's learned a lesson from this past weekend and all the cloud of stuff that's come out afterwards. Um, but, you know, if that carries over, if I'm the Dodgers, if that carries into the playoffs and has a, a big, you know, distraction or, you know, deterioration of how you play, that's a guy you got to consider like in the off season, like do we, do we talk to him and say, you know, do we need to trade you? Do we need to move you somewhere else? Do we need to, what do we need to do to make this work for everyone involved kind of thing? So I have a feeling there will be some additional, not necessarily the drama like we just saw, but I, I think there's going to be some additional um, news related to this. that comes out probably this off season. I agree, and and Freddie needs to really, for his sake, needs to move on because if you keep re- if you keep repeating a lie to yourself, you'll actually start believing it. It can be based on a lie that hey, I know this is false, but if you keep re- repeating it and keep saying it, you'll start believing it. And I could tell by the way Freddie t- does his interviews, the way he's still acting now, that his heart is definitely in Atlanta. He really made a huge mistake, in my opinion. He should have stayed in Atlanta, and he knows he made a mistake, and I think he's just pointing the blame to someone else now. I, I agree with Derek Jeter and his agent. Freddie knew everything about the details. You know, you didn't act quick enough. You said that you wanted to be in Atlanta, but saying something and doing something are two different things. 100%. I agree with you there. So. So that saga, hopefully, uh, for the time being, is over. But I, I have a feeling with the All-Star game being in Los Angeles, there may be some more questions about it that, uh, that come up here in the next couple of weeks. So um, as we close out our show tonight, I know we always like to bring in um, things in some other areas of sports, uh, some PGA stuff, and then we'll go into uh, a little bit of, uh, of boxing. Uh, give us the latest here, Alan, tonight on uh, what's going on in the PGA. And there's some um, – rules that you wanted to go over here with us tonight yeah you know i did see a lot of people this week in particular complaining about the rules in pga what i mean by rules specifically is when a player should get relief and when he should not what i mean by relief is if his ball is sitting on let's say a sprinkler head or maybe a a drain or sitting right next to a tree or in a hole in a tree when he should not get relief and when should he. Also, we're talking about balls that go into water. I think a player, if your ball goes, let me talk about the water part first. If your ball goes in the water, and I feel as if your ball is submerged in the water by at least five inches of water, not like a little divot of water, little pool of water that's in the fairway or something, if your ball is in a body of water, whether it be a lake or pond, and it's submerged by at least five inches of water, I think you should just take the penalty shot and move on and get a drop. I don't agree with players getting down to their drawers, taking off their shoes, getting in the water to try to hit the golf ball to save a shot. I personally don't agree with it because it's dangerous. Here in Florida, if you jump into water, you know as well as I know, Aaron, you're taking a risk. There could be a gator. You don't know what's in that water. And – it's, to me, it just doesn't look good. A guy getting into his drawers or taking up his shoes, it holds up play. Just get the penalty shot and have that across the board with everybody. The ball is in 
submerge in five inches of water or more, three inches, whatever it is, get a little ruler, you have to take a drop. And when it comes to the relief play, I, I agree with the, the play where if your ball is not on a sprinkler head or on a grill or on a drain, if it doesn't impact your swing as far as your stance and your club, then you have to hit it where it lies. For example, there was a play in a tournament, the last tournament, where JT, Justin Thomas, basically his ball was hit in the fairway, right in the middle of the fairway, but there was a drain hole there. The ball was about four inches away from the drain, and he wanted to get relief because he felt as if it was too close to the drain. But yet he could have stood right by the drain and not been on the drain and hit the ball fine. And they did not basically rule for him, which I agree with it. But JT got all upset and got in his head and it messed up his shot. Just the other day, the guy had a ball that went in a hole and he wanted relief. They didn't give relief and he got all, you know, upset. I I think if I'm a player for the PGA, don't expect to get relief because maybe that's a better way to look at it because I see what happens when guys don't get relief, they get all upset as a, pro, as a pro, and then it takes them out of their next shot. I just think that those rules, some of the rules for PGA are ridiculous, but I do agree with sometimes with the relief. With the water rule, I think absolutely you should get penalized for hitting a ball in the water, and you should not hit a ball in the water to save a stroke. What are your thoughts on that, hitting balls in the water? Yeah, no, I agree with you 100%. Um, you know, and every time you and I have gone and played uh, ball in the water, you take a penalty, you take a drop, and you move on. You just kind of take it as it goes. Everybody plays by the same rules. Everybody's happy. Nobody's getting uh, a disadvantage. Everybody's got the same opportunity. So I agree with you 100% there. Yeah, just, just it speeds up play, move on. No need for a guy to get in his draws. And here in Florida, it's unsafe. You know, not too many days ago, I saw a gator in the, in the water. You know, that's one of the things here in Florida. You can see a little baby gator. It may not be a big gator, but he bites Mama's your nearby. toe. He's going to hurt. He's going to hurt. He bites your toe. Yeah. <laughs> it might not be a, you know, a 10 or 11-foot gator, but if a baby bites your toe or even one of those stabbing turtles bites your toe, it's going to hurt. So even a fish, you know, just it's it's not safe. It's not sanitary. Just get the penalty shot, and it's cross the board for everybody. So I just wanted to give my thoughts on that. And I wanted to give you guys up to date on boxing. First, I wanted to give a few shout-outs to a couple of boxers that we interviewed here on the Allen and Aaron Sports Talk Radio Show. They do have fights. You know, Joel Kemko Camilleri, I want to give him a shout-out. He's got a fight that's coming up in a few hours. And also Dana Coolwell. He's got a fight, too. He lost his last fight. He's got a redemption fight. And Joel has a redemption fight, too. He lost to the guy that he's fighting. He's getting his rematch. So best wishes to those two. I wanted to also wish a happy birthday to Mike Tyson. Today is Mike Tyson's birthday. A lot of people don't realize that. So definitely wanted to to say uh, happy birthday to Mike. All right, Mike. And... Outside of that, with boxing news, I did want to say that Tommy Fury and Jake Paul seems to be delayed. Tommy Fury did not get 
basically he did not was not allowed here in the country due to some you know potential connection with a mob boss so (laughs) (laughs) that sounds totally cooked up too doesn't it (laughs) yeah so jake paul still thinks that's an excuse I, i i don't know if that is an excuse if you're not allowed in a country because of your connection with allegedly a mob boss i don't find that to be an excuse meaning like they're not going to let you in the country to get paid because you're connected to the mob boss you got bigger problems and i don't think that's going to be fixed <laughs> by between now and august so if i'm jake paul i would just do as you said and move on and don't even think about this fight again just try to fight find somebody else don't go to UK to fight him. I know a lot of fans have said, hey, moving to the UK, fighting the UK. And I'm like, yeah, it's not that easy. You know what I'm saying? Most of Jake Paul's fan base is here in the U.S. Almost nobody's going to go to the UK to go watch him fight. And then you have to promote it a totally different way. Plus, there's a difference in expenses. So just squash that and move on. So I did want to let fans know that, that uh, the Jake Paul fight is in limbo right now, from what I understand. Jake Paul is moving on. I agree with Jake Paul. Just move on from the fight. It's, it wasn't meant to be. This is the second time you had to fight this guy. It wasn't this issue before, but he had an injury right before the fight. If I'm Jake Paul, I'm putting this whole idea to bed and just moving on. Sometimes in life, that's just best to do, just to move on. And I also did want to let everybody know in the boxing world that you know what? We're going to try to reach out to a couple of other later Hall of Fame greats. I don't, I don't want to spoil surprise who they are, but definitely I wanted to say, in my opinion, the greatest boxer of all time and will always be the GOAT will be Muhammad Ali. I know that uh, Mike Tyson, we just wish him a happy birthday. Mike Tyson, to me, in my opinion, in his prime is – in in the top five of all-time greatest heavyweights, all-time great Mike Tyson is prime. But I was going to say my number one boxer of all time that I considered to be the GOAT is Muhammad Ali. I know that Floyd this week has talked a lot about him being the GOAT, and I respect everything he's saying, but I do not put him in the category of GOAT. That is Muhammad Ali. And those are my boxing news and thoughts for today. All right, perfect. And I happen to agree with you, too, uh, as far as that uh, sentiment is concerned. So um, <laughs> uh, well, definitely another great show here. I want to thank our good buddy Lou for chiming in at the very top of the show here tonight. And, of course, our wonderful sponsor, uh, Chef G's Barbecue Sauce, so delicious and addicting. You may need a support group. We certainly thank him for his support these last several months and uh, continued uh, uh, partnership that we have with him. Um, want to wish everybody a happy and safe 4th of July uh, as we go into the holiday weekend. And um, I will be actually away from the show for, uh, for the next, uh, next several weeks as I begin my long journey vacation out to Colorado uh, next Friday. Um, and then the following two Fridays will be part of the trip. But I want to tell everyone to stay tuned for photos on our journey it'll be on our uh, facebook page 
as we're going to be visiting uh, Bush Stadium in St. Louis, Kauffman Stadium in Kansas City. Uh, as I've made um, uh, notice on this too, uh, in Kansas City you have the uh, Negro League Hall of Fame. Uh, we are planning to take a tour through there. I'm really, really excited about this. I'll be sharing as many photos as we're allowed to on the artifacts and some of the uh, different things that are there. And then, of course, we're going to end in Colorado. We'll be in Denver for a game with the Colorado Rockies. So um, definitely we'll bring those uh, things to you and um, look forward to being back at the end of the month and uh, continuing on on the Allen and Aaron Sports Talk podcast. So for, uh, for Allen, this is Aaron signing off. Everyone have a great weekend. Thank you for listening to the Evan Aaron Sports Talk Podcast. Subscribe and check us out on your favorite social media platform. Thank you. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.